Good evening and welcome to the fourth episode of Leadership Conversations in the Development Sector. The social impact sector is full of passionate leaders with innovative outlooks on the world's greatest problems. Our Leadership Conversations focus on the unique insights offered by these leaders as they share their experiences and move the development sector forward. Our host, Go Barefoot, is an interactive web portal dedicated to the social sector. It brings together individuals, NGOs, NPOs, and CSR arms of organizations with the mandate of creating a one-stop information website for both networking and knowledge sharing. We are supported by Catalyst, an NGO which has been preparing young women for leadership roles to create equality in opportunities and bridge the gender gap. Also, we are supported by third sector partners, India's only executive search firm exclusively for the development sector. Our guest today is one of the leading lights in the development sector. I would like to extend a warm welcome to Alkesh Vadwani, Director, Poverty Alleviation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Alkesh leads the Poverty Alleviation Portfolio for the Foundation's India Country Office, which comprises programmatic work in agriculture, development, water, sanitation and hygiene, financial services for the poor, and gender equality. He joined the foundation in India in 2003 and was one of the key members who helped conceptualize and implement the $338 million funded Avhan program, the AIDS initiative of the world's largest HIV AIDS prevention programs. Before joining the foundation, he worked for McKinsey. He has also worked in the financial institutions group of Citibank in Mumbai. His educational background includes a B.Tech in Electrical Engineering, IIT Mumbai, and MBA from IIM Calcutta in Finance and Systems. In conversation with Alkesh is Sheetal Kakkar Mehra, Leadership Expert and Executive Presence Coach for CEOs. Sheetal has coached several hundred CXOs in the past decade and has conducted workshops for diverse organizations across Asia. She has been invited as a speaker by leading B-Schools and professional associations. She's a best-selling author and her latest best-selling book on executive presence is India's first research-based formula on executive presence. Sheetal is an active philanthropist and social entrepreneur. Thank you, Sheetal and Alkesh for joining us today. I would like to now hand it over to you, Sheetal. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Sakshi. Welcome to the session, Alkesh. We are honored and uh, it, it'll be wonderful interacting and hearing your views on the development sector. So I'm going to ask you my first question. You started your journey in the corporate sector with Citibank and McKinsey. What excited you to transition to the development sector? So Sheetal, you know, I think while I was in McKinsey itself, I knew I wanted to join the nonprofit sector. I worked in McKinsey for five years. And out of that, I spent about two and a half years doing nonprofit uh, um, engagements. That's not normal. I mean, everyone does one or two, but spending 50% of your time uh, in nonprofit, um, while in a profit firm is uh, unusual. And I think it, I always knew at the back of my head, finally, I wanted to join the nonprofit. And I think that I got this opportunity. I was very happy about it. 
And what drove me really was the fact that uh, I live in Bombay. It's a city of huge disparities, huge, huge disparities. I was uh, luckily in a place where I was uh, earning a reasonable amount and I felt I had some savings. And every time I step out of my building, I just look at the disparities and found it really tough to live with it. So I, when I, at some point I said, now I've spent five years here, I want to join the nonprofit. And that's what I did. Amazing. So it's, it was your passion for the sector and the initial interactions that you had uh, in your job. So that's um, now, um, you know, the NGO sector in India has significantly changed and evolved. And you have seen the evolution in the last uh, one or two decades almost. So how do you think that leadership has evolved to rise to this challenge? Right, right. So, uh... Yes, I have been here for a long time. I uh, started in, as you mentioned, in 2003. Uh, and when I look at the programs that uh, I would be involved in then and now, the programs might be similar. Uh, but I think the, the main difference is uh, the, the nonprofit sector, I'll, I'll make two points, the nonprofit sector has grown and more and more people have got more and more experience. So the scale of the programs being handled are bigger and bigger. Uh, and I think just more and more people are experienced. Uh, you've got more leaders who've come either grown from the nonprofit itself or who have come from other sectors. So you can see that growth clearly happening. Uh, the second point I'll make is that as a foundation, we work and support 80, 90% of our programs are supporting government programs. And I see the same switch there. So the switch there is not really in terms of scale. The program... Um, Governments always had large-scale programs, but I think the ability to deliver uh, has changed drastically. I mean, today's officers and uh, staff who run government programs know how to actually execute well, see that things are working. Uh, and again, I think it's just, it's, it's driven apart from experience by the fact that politically the landscape has changed drastically. I think 18, 20 years back, uh, it wasn't so important for a political party to demonstrate de development and to show that programs have reached the ground and so on. Uh, perhaps as important or more important 20 years back was, you know, caste-based, identity-based politics. I'm not saying that has disappeared. It's still important, but it's equally important today to show that you've delivered development. So the pressure on bureaucrats and government to deliver is much, much, much more. And they are always saying, what is new? What can we do? How can we deliver? So, and in a way, government is also non-profit, right? I mean, it's not a profit sector. So I see the same change there. And in a way, the change is a, is a reflection of society. Society has changed over the last 20 years. Society has, one, become richer, of course, in India too. Uh, but equally important, I, I think it, all of us are more educated. So the expectations are much more aspirations are much more because of TV and so on. So it's a reflection of society, I feel, that uh, that the change has come in the NGO sector and the government. Uh, you know, the last point I'll make on society change, on society's changing is that even the corporate sector, what it was, say, in 1947 when we got independence of, into 20 years back, it was much smaller. Now the size of the companies are so large that, again, it, this is a reflection of how society is changing. A government and NGOs also change with society. Superb. So, um, yes, I agree with you completely. And India has done well. And, you know, um, that's amazing. So I'm going to keep the thread of the leadership going. 
So what do you think are some of the shortcomings of the leaders that you see in the development sector? And uh, how do you feel that uh, they can work towards uh, plugging that gap? Right, right. So, you know, I'll perhaps rather than use the word shortcomings, I'll just say how it's different uh, from what it could potentially be. Uh, so, you know, one is our sector, the NGO sector or the nonprofit sector of which I'm a part. You know, it is very small relative to uh, either the government sector or the for-profit sector, right? Uh, so as a result, the kind of um, experience that, say, I would have or others in my or any or in the sector would have would not offer the same scale typically that would be offered in uh, either government or the for-profit for sector. So, for example, you know, the large companies in India, whether it's Reliance or Tata, the size and scale of, or any of the other large companies, the size and scale you are dealing with is pretty humongous, right? And yes, Gates Foundation is a large player, but the size and scale is smaller relative to uh, the large programs, the large companies that the private sector runs. And if you run a larger company, you have more experience, you have diverse experience, you have different experience. For example, I think I was reading yesterday or day before just an article in the newspaper which said that Tata's uh, TCS recruited 20,000 odd people this quarter, right? And it was the highest ever. So, you know, you extrapolate, you're recruiting 100,000 people. Now, if you are recruiting 100,000 people, then no. The processes you have to put in place and the, the challenges you face are very different than if the NGO you are working with, if it's large, it has 1,000 people or 5,000 people, right? If to recruit 100,000 people, they must be getting, I don't know, million, 2 million applications which they have to screen. To screen 2 million applications, they have to have AI systems to deal even with applications. You can't be interviewing 2 million people. So it's just a different ball game. So you don't get that exposure that you would get there. So I think this is one difference that one has to accept and uh, you know realize. Uh, on the flip side, a typical company has to... Uh, focus on a very small and identified set of things to execute against their program, right? So if you're building some widget, you're building a, you know, even, I mean, let's not take complex things like aeroplanes, but say, suppose you're building a, uh, say, pump, right? And you're selling pumps, right? There are large companies in India that sell pumps. Fine, you have, uh, you know, suppliers, which, and you have to get them together. You need, of course, you need a good supply chain, you need a good manufacturing process, and then you need to sell it. Right, but in the non-profit, you deal with much more than that, and you deal with huge number of stakeholders that you don't have to worry about in the for-profit sector. Uh, you have to deal with a whole set of socio-economic issues uh, that you don't have to deal with in the for-profit sector. So yes, at that level, you do get a broader exposure on how society works. So I would say you have pros and cons on on these two sides of on what a leader and the non-profit has to deal with versus what a leader and the for-profit has to deal with. Superb, wonderful to hear that. So how does your organization proactively help, uh, you know, develop potential leaders? Uh, some of the measures of, you know, practices or some possibly programs that they participate in. Uh, so how, you know, because um, you have uh, grown extensively in the last few years, and have a lot of several now people who have taken over leadership positions internally. Right, right. So, uh, you know, I'm not too sure whether to answer the question of how, you know, internally as uh, people in Gates Foundation, we have grown or how we encourage growth in, in 
organizations we fund so perhaps i'll focus on the second question uh, and you know there is this i don't know what it's called i, I think hr person says some 70 20 10 rule or something that 70% of growth or learning has to come from on the job right uh, and then it's 20 and 10 and maybe that 10 is classroom training uh, so i think the uh, the biggest uh, training in a way that uh, leaders in organizations we fund get is because the scale of our funding typically is large and that force in a way forces that program to deal with lots of challenges and uncertainties and scale and so on right so uh, some of our programs you know uh, they are large in two ways either uh, nearly all our programs are supporting government and government programs are very large so it's how do you move those large programs of government to make it to work with them to help them define it to in terms of what are the goals what are the processes what how to make systems better make it more efficient make it more effective uh, so you think of it as that the organizations we fund are consulting to government like any consulting firm uh, and providing some execution support so i think that itself forces our the organizations we fund to grow for the leaders to grow because suddenly they are supporting programs that are in 10000 villages 50000 villages and so on uh the second is the teams that often not always the teams that we fund are large of the organization that support government so uh this is not always the case but if i take one example say in bihar right in bihar where we have had a large health program for a decade uh our team might have had i don't know 5000 of not our team let me be more specific the organization we funded would have 5000 people supporting government now that might seem big but the program that is that the government program that is supported has typically 100 to 200000 people so you don't have a lot of people to support the government right and maybe 200000 people if you add the two departments we were working with which is uh, uh health and wcd or whatever women and women and child development so uh teams leading 5000 itself the leaders grow right because typically the ngos are smaller they use this to grow their skills their staff etc etc get more specialized so i think the bulk comes from just them suddenly leading larger programs over years and that gives them the experience uh, to uh, to uh, think about systems big small big changes etc etc so i would say that's the primary way we uh, help uh, the ecosystem get leaders formed so if i have to step back i would say if not today say 20 years back uh, or 15 years back all the not all many of the leaders came from uh, india's uh, polio program uh, that who led right it was called it's called npsp i mean it's now not there in such a large scale because india has achieved polio elimination yes. but those people who are the leaders and who helped india achieve for elimination of polio went into lead many many programs because they got lot of training from a who and in turn they you know knew how to run large scale programs knew knew how to do large scale surveillance etc etc do it systematically have the best knowledge in the field and so on and they went on to oversee many many health programs in the country including going back to government because many of these leaders were from government uh, and we were part funders of that program npsp 
the program that I at one point led, which which I think uh, was referred to earlier, the HIV AIDS program, similarly was a pretty large program where we funded lots of organizations uh, to run HIV program that was called Avahan. And again, because these were large scale programs and in it kind of built the field and uh, in a way encouraged a set of practices to be methodical, to be process driven, and yet care about impact, et cetera, et cetera, to be data driven. And I, and I saw that a lot of the leaders there went on then to lead organizations in health across uh, India in the nonprofit sector. So that has been my experience of how leaders are built. Uh, but coming to us, the second point, right? This is on the job. And like we all accept that more than just on the job. So we do, but this is in a small way. Uh, we do uh, have organizations we fund to provide some sort of leadership uh, training development, I would call, to other organizations we fund. So for example, we funded Dasra, whose goal it is to work with other partners of ours uh, to look at communications and other aspects that will help develop leadership. So yeah, this is roughly the way. Thank you. Uh, so um, still staying on the leadership track, uh, you have more than two, almost two decades of experience in this sector and you have seen it change, grow, evolve. Many of our, uh, we have several young professionals today in our audience who would love to hear from you that uh, what is your uh, you know, piece of it, some advice to the rising stars of the development sectors, people who are in their late 20s, early 30s, and possibly have three decades of career ahead of them. So what advice would you like to give them? So uh, that's a tough one, right? I think everyone, I mean, if I have to say one thing is that it really is great if you can follow your passion, right? Uh, because I you know, the amount you can get done just by following your passion, if you're passionate about something, I think uh, exceeds anything else that, uh, you know, a job can teach you or trainings can teach you. So as long as you follow your passion, I think a lot can happen. Uh, the second I would say is that uh, it is worth thinking about uh, switching not being stuck to only one thing and switching roles either in your own organization or uh, looking at um, you know, different organizations so that you are not following only one track. Now, of course, there are people who succeeded following only one track, uh, you know, and founders of large companies have done that, whether it's Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that may not be the, uh, the norm. So I think if you are in a company which is not huge, if you are in a huge company or a huge NGO, yes, you can move within that NGO and go get experience in different roles. But if you're not, I think it's worth getting experience in uh, either different, different roles in terms of say, first you are say doing MIS or MLE in, uh, in, in, in NGO sector, monitoring and evaluation. At some point you're a program officer, at some point you're looking at communications. So I think having some breadth of knowledge in that way is useful. And uh, also having some breadth of knowledge across sectors uh, in terms of verticals. So for example, if you're working in sanitation, you might choose to say that, look, okay, I have spent seven, eight years. Let me see if, it, if you feel passionate about it, that look, I want to work in climate change or health or education or whatever. And the reason I say this is that 
I think a lot of ideas come from having a broad breadth of knowledge and having experience, exposure to different ways of how things work and being able to apply it from one sector to another or being able to apply it across functions. Uh, and I think most, at least this is what I've read, a lot of innovations come from people who are new to the sector and have never been in the sector, right? So the other mm -hmm. example, of course, is you know Elon Musk, what does he know about rocket science? Uh, but he's beaten all the other companies to it, right? He because he's from some other sector. So I think this kind of yeah. So I think having this kind of cross exposure is useful. So I'll say these Super. two. Things. So yeah. thank you. I'm sure uh, young professionals in the audience would greatly benefit from that. Uh, now you know with the current COVID situation, we see a lot of grants being made to the health program. Of course, we are delighted to share with you, um, share with the audience that the Gates Foundation is the second largest uh, donor of the century. And of course, it's a matter of great honor and pride that Jamshedi Tata Trust, of course, has uh, been the number one donor um, in, the uh, in the past century. So now in the post-COVID era environment, uh, what do you see are the changes in the development sector? So, um, even uh, something connected to possibly non-health thematic areas, or generally, what do you see the, how will COVID, post-COVID uh, era, you know, things will change or your view on it? So, you know, what I see, which is, I think everyone is likely to accept it, is, again, it's a reflection of the larger world, is that, you know, we are talking right now over Zoom. And uh, that really is the reality that digital is going much more viral or getting much more acceptance that, than it did in the past. Uh, okay. and that is a clearly a big change has not happened only in the for-profit world or it happened also in the non-profit world and in government. Um, I can give you many examples. For example, we did one, and this is just one example, we did one training for government where um, uh, health supported them where they had one and a half lakh uh, frontline workers over a Zoom call, right? We didn't realize that you could get that kind of uh, scale uh, but we we did. So this is just one example, but I see more and more acceptance. Now, a lot of our training with government frontline staff is digital. Uh, earlier, it was much, much less, right? And these are big changes. Uh, similarly, meeting with government officials. Uh, before uh, COVID, I think in 18 years, I did not have one meeting with a government official on uh, Zoom or on uh, any, or on the phone or any, any, uh, non-face-to-face interaction. Uh, but now it seems to be accepted. Uh, and no. all these are huge, I think, productivity drivers. Uh, because, you know, you don't have to spend traveling, time traveling, you can, you know, fix up a meeting more easily, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the biggest change, like in the rest of the world, is the growth of technology. Digital. Yeah, yeah. Super. Wonderful. Uh, so one, my final question, and then of course we'll take some questions from the audience, uh, that uh, how do you personally continue to grow and develop yourself as a leader? So if you can share some uh, tips and tricks with our audience, that would be nice. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm not sure I'm growing at the pace that I was earlier and that worries me and that's, I don't know, maybe I'm just going to hold. So you can see I'm white and so on. Uh, so, you know, maybe one or two things that I uh, do. Uh, so one is I, I do read a lot. 
uh, and that's gone down in the last one year. So I would travel literally every week once at least. Uh, so that meant four hours on the flight. So I was reading four hours on the flight uh, beyond my work. So that was, and I think that's my theme that one needs to get a broader experience than just the work you're doing. So I would, I would, I would typically spend my flight time reading stuff, which either non-profit, uh, sorry, non, non-fiction or even fiction. And one should not, uh, so, you know, 70, 80% of my reading is non-fiction. Uh, but one should not discount fiction it's as important so actually the data says that if, you know if you want to be creative you really should view read fiction because fiction gives you ideas and That's you never true. know yeah so you just don't know where you know uh, you just need to be broad a broad thinker i think to bring new ideas to the table and the more you read the better uh, the second is that you know there's this huge tendency or rut if you worked in a job long enough to think that you know the answers and there's a certain way that you will get outcomes. Uh, and, but the world changes and you are not in touch with the world, right? That's the challenge all of us, at least if you've been working long face. Uh, so there is, I think, no substitute to being in the field and looking at different programs. I, I have the opportunity to do that, right? Because uh, yeah, it's not that, okay, I'm working for one NGO, so I have to only see what that NGO is doing. Since we work with a whole set of NGOs, I have that luxury of being able to either talk to different NGOs and or to understand their programs and or go to the field. So it has to be a combination of talking and going to the field because, I mean, again, you can't substitute the field with just hearing people. Uh, so I think that's the second thing. Uh, these, I think, would be the two most important. The thing I feel uh, made me very happy, but if I take a career view was not the best thing to do was that I spent a lot of time in one field, right? So I ran or whatever was involved in the HIV program for 10 years. Uh, and I went more and more into detail in that program and finally was running it for a few years. Uh, so that doesn't give you the breadth that you would get if you changed a bit. Uh, so I, that's why I'd encouraged others to, uh, you know, change uh, to see if they want to look at different things and not only be stuck in one thing. But, you know, who's, who knows what's the right thing. So, for example, uh, it's a trade-off, right? Maybe my career would be better if I didn't spend 10 years in one program. But uh, in terms of satisfaction, that gave me the most satisfaction. So, would I change what I did? No. Uh, because, you know, being there for 10 years allowed me to see the whole uh, evolution of the program. Take it to conclusion. Because, you know, these programs are pretty large. And if you're trying to have impact, in a country as large as India and say, okay, I'm, I'm looking for impact and, and I'm looking to hand it over and transition it so that it's sustainable to the government. It's nearly impossible to do it in less than a 10-year period. So, yeah. Superb. So we have a couple of questions. We have uh, Anjali Patel from Third Sector Partners who would like to ask a question. She just messaged. So, yes, Anjali, um, may I request you to, yeah, super wonderful to see you. Thank you, Sheetal. Hi, Alkesh. Um, it's, it's been <laughs> listening to you today. Um, so at Third Sector Partners, you know, Alkesh, in the last 16 years, 
uh, we've had advised and uh, successfully transitioned over 80 crossover candidates from the corporate sector. So when we interact with candidates wanting to make that switch to the development sector, uh, their ambition is to work with BMGF for obvious reasons. So my question to you is, um, what would be your advice um, to the candidates, especially the ones um, who want to shift from the corporate uh, side and aspiring to work with BMGF? So what would be your advice to uh, these crossover candidates? Thanks. Right, right. So uh, just some background, right? Uh, we have grown as an organization from literally two, three people when we started uh, in uh, 2003, and right now we are some 70, 80 people. And, uh, uh, you know, 70, 80 may not sound like a lot, but for a funding organization, it is very large. Uh, so we don't see ourselves growing much more. I think we've peaked in terms of where we want to be because earlier uh, we looked at one sector, right? For 10 years, we ran only an HIV program and then we expanded to mother and child health and so on. And now we are kind of covering every possible area that our foundation works on. And that's the reason we've kind of peaked in terms of where we feel we, we, feel we need to be. So I just wanted to give this background to the folks listening in. Uh, and uh, so the, the kind of folks we take, the bulk are uh, pretty uh, experienced, right? Most of them have 10 years, 10 plus years of experience, at least, I don't know, half to one third of 20 plus years of experience. And we have a few people who are have two, three years of experience. Those are the associates, but they'll be like maybe five in an organization of uh, 80. Uh, so we are looking for uh, the, and the second thing I'd say in terms of background really is that apart from the fact that we plateaued out is that we are now more specialized than we were 20 years back. So we are now looking more and more for specialists uh, who have uh, experience in the areas we work in. Uh, that is uh, uh, agriculture, sanitation, financial inclusion, and gender and health. These are the five big areas we work in. Uh, so we are looking for specialists who understand uh, the areas we work in. You know, for example, if we recruit someone in TB, that person should have, you know, five ten years of experience in TB at least, have um, relevant experience with large scale programs, etc. So in every area now, we are looking for uh, ex uh, specialization. And as long as I think you're specialized and uh, we feel that, look, you know, you've done a good job. That's really the skill set we are looking for. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. We have a second question from Purvi Shah of Catalyst. Uh, yes, Purvi. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry, I'm just trying to, uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, hi, Alkesh. It was really interesting to uh, listen to your thoughts, uh, especially about leadership, because uh, leadership and especially women leadership is very close to my heart and our organization's vision. Uh, so our vision is to uh, create equality in uh, opportunity and leadership, and we work with the young women in uh, a professional education to prepare them for leadership roles. So my question to you is, since gender is also part of your portfolio, uh, my question to you is, uh, what, uh, what is BM, uh, uh, BMGF doing and what can organizations do 
to create more op uh, equal opportunities for women and create more uh, women leaders and uh, opportunities for them to take up that leadership. Right, right. So uh, we are uh, doing, uh, at a broad level, we work in two, three areas in gender equality. One is, uh, you know, shining a light on the data. Uh, which highlights the inequalities so that people are aware of it and can take action against it, right? Uh, so uh, the biggest barriers in gender inequality often come from, uh, you know, time use, uh, which is, you know, women have to do a lot of unpaid, unpaid work, mm. which includes sure, work sure. at home, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there are other barriers which would include, uh, you know, lack of infrastructure, for example, public transport is not good enough for women to reach work, it's not safe, and so on and so forth. So we do study these uh, these barriers, we do get data out on time use, on the difference, etc., so that people can act on it. Similarly, looking at pay scale differences, etc., etc. Uh, but I think we'll all agree that while getting data is useful, it's not sufficient to actually yeah. drive change, right? But it's very important. Because unless you can first point to the data, it doesn't really, you know, you don't even know the difference. Now there's just so much data, at least in the Western world, and for example, pay parity differences. So yeah. we try to collect a lot of sex disaggregated data on each and everything, right? Uh, the second is we have various programs to encourage women to be leaders. And I think roughly they are like scholarships or internships and so on and so forth. And I I believe, and I, because we've not yet brought that program hugely into India, but it started in the US, it's in three fields, which includes legal uh, and a, two other fields, uh, education and a third field where uh, we are starting scholarships to encourage women leaders, because we feel in some of these fields, if, if uh, and the third could, I'm not sure it could be, for example, uh, political or something. Not, I mean, not elected, obviously, that's not, uh, you can't give scholarships for that, but I, I need to check which three fields. Advocacy uh, or something. Is, is it advocacy, policy, no. advocacy? No. no, 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 I don't think so. So it is like legal and two other areas. Huh. Uh, because we feel if there are women leaders in, in these three areas, then that would really help. They could drive change in those sectors and without change in those sectors, it's tough to really make change for women. And the third area we work in which is perhaps the largest, is uh, uh, on women's economic empowerment. So we feel that, uh, except in a few countries, the data shows that if women are economically empowered, then they gain a lot of empower other empowerment, as opposed to saying, let us empower women so that gender-based violence comes down, etc. You, you know, you work there as well. But if you empower women, they automatically get the social empowerment, which would include, for example, decision-making right. within households, etc. Right. Uh, so we do a lot of work there. So these are three big areas that we work in in, in gender. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Purvi. Um, Sakshi, we have some questions from our uh, listeners. So we have time for just one question. So uh, Sakshi. Yes, Shitil, yeah. Thanks. Okay, so there is yeah there are a few questions that we have from our audience. I'll try to read a few. So, what tips would you give social sector leaders who want to re-engineer process and programs to include digital tools? Uh, so, 
you know, uh, there are lots and lots of apps out there, right? So it's pretty easy to make apps. Uh, but I think uh, the challenge is not just to make the apps. So I think the answer is, you know, you have to integrate and see how the apps get used. And like in the broader world, uh, in a country like India, we know it's not about all digital. In a way, you have to make it digital. So you have to see how that digital uh, works along with some human interface to drive the process to be better. That's, I think, the one learning I would call out. Uh, perhaps the best example I can give you of this is UPI. So you and I may be transferring money either through Paytm or through UPI directly, uh, uh, which has now become pretty ubiquitous. Um, but while people think it's ubiquitous, UPI is only used by 100 to 150 million people in India. So it's like 10% of the population, which is the rich population. But uh, there's something called AEPS, Aadhaar Enabled Payment System. So what that does is if you are, uh, if you've linked your bank account to Aadhaar, if you are not rich, the assumption is you won't have a smartphone. So you, if you're buying something from a store, you there's a, a thumbprint reader, which costs like pennies. I mean, like less than hundred rupees or a few hundred rupees or even less. I'm not sure of the exact cost. You put your fingerprint there. So that's an Aadhaar enabled payments reader. Uh, reader. Your, and your bank account can be debited for the amount you bought. So that's an example of digital, right? You've got digital in the backbone. You've got a, a, a device there, but it's linked to an actual person there helping you use the device and you're putting in the amount that needs to be debited uh, without you needing a debit card or a credit card or anything. So I think that's my, my view, yeah. Superb. Uh, one more question we have time for Sakshi. So if you could. Sure, sure. Okay, so the next question is, how do you think digital transformation will change the social sector? Uh, so for, for me, the way it cha really changes the social sector is the ability to reach scale, right? That really is the big thing. Uh, the example I gave of 150,000 frontline workers of the government we went through with a Zoom call, you know, again and again, we see that kind of thing happening. So that's how I think it can help to drive scales. That's how it can transform the social sector. Thank you. Thank you, Alkesh. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing your insights on the development sector and I really appreciate and I'm sure our audience have learned a lot from you. Uh, of course, we have several questions and uh, we can forward some of them to you and it will be great if you could answer them for us. Sure. Uh, and on that note, a big thank you to you and a big thank you to our audience for joining us today and um, stay safe, stay vaccinated, and uh, looking forward to catching up for the next session. So thank you, Alkesh, and thank you to everybody. Thanks thank you, a lot. Peter, and thank you, Catalyst team. It's been a pleasure to be here and an honor, and thank you very much. Thank you.